My name is Patrick Schlabs, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul, and it is my joy to open up the scriptures together with you this morning. It is hard to believe that we still have several weeks to go. There are many expectations. There is much stress. We're all going to be fixated to some degree or another on our news feeds. And who knows the damage and the destruction that the coming weeks will bring. And of course, I'm talking about the end of hurricane season. I'm not sure what you thought I was talking about. But in thinking about hurricanes, they're scary, right? Those of you who have been in the low country for a while have certainly lived through your share of uh, scary storms. But I will say, you know, I'm not an old timer in the low country, but I've lived here for almost a decade. And I will say that hurricanes to me are still not as scary as growing up in what's known as Tornado Alley. And the reason I believe that tornadoes are still more terrifying, though hurricanes can certainly bring much greater damage over a wider area, hurricanes are sudden and they're unpredictable and they're acute, they're intense. I'll never forget um, about just before I moved to Charleston, about 12 years ago, visiting the town of Joplin, Missouri, where a friend of mine was a pastor and went there to serve alongside um, his church. I'll just never forget the devastation that that Joplin hurricane wrought in, in a very short amount of time. Just a mile-wide swath through that city was completely and utterly devastated, and lives were lost because of its suddenness, because of its unpredictability and its intensity. If 2020 were a weather event. I argue this morning that it would be much closer to a tornado than to a hurricane because of that unpredictability. Who among us expected this year to be like it's been? I, of course, don't need to give you a list of all the things that have gone wrong with this year, all the things that have been difficult and frustrating and devastating. It's been a year that has been sudden and unpredictable and intense pain and suffering and plague. But if the greatest film from the late 90s about a weather event is to believe, to be believed, there can be a place of safety and quiet and peace in the midst of any storm. Of course, I'm talking about uh, the movie Twister with Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt, who ride out this F5 tornado by hunkering down in the eye. And there's a moment in the film where they look up and they can see the blue sky and they, they say that we're in the eye. And yet they see all of this chaos around them. They see houses and cars and cows flying all around them. And yet they are in a place of peace and quiet. And so too, we can be in the middle of the worst of what 2020 has to offer. And yet we can find a place of safety and peace. And more than that, we can be agents of peace ourselves. And so I invite you now to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to look at some words that St. Paul brings to us that I think are extremely relevant for those of us in the midst of the storm that is 2020. Paul begins by saying, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, by implication, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul, as Pete referenced last week, is writing this letter from prison. And he's writing it to a group of Christians who are in the midst 
of a storm. He's writing to a Roman colony that is accustomed to storms. It's a a, a colony that was settled by veterans of Roman power struggles. These are people who had encountered great struggles in war and battle and conflict, and then had been settled there and had been, because of their service, been gifted with tax breaks. And so it was a relatively wealthy city. It was, of course, polytheistic, like many Roman colonies would have been at the time. And this church here at Philippi is the first European church. And in contrast to many of the letters that St. Paul sends to churches, this appears to be a relatively healthy church. He's not doing theological triage or pastoral triage for this church. It's more just a letter thanking them for their fellowship, thanking for their partnership in the gospel by giving Paul a gift, a financial gift, in order to, to encourage his ministry. And of course, this letter also reminds them of their status as a place of contrast, a colony within a colony, as it were, of contrast to the surrounding culture. And he begins with these words, stand firm in the Lord. So there is recognition that there's opposition. There's opposition from the surrounding uh, pagan world, always at hand, but there's maybe more significantly in this chapter, uh, threats from within. Threats of those who would come, as, as Pete preached on last week, and, and try to, to promote a, 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 an adoption of Judaism upon these Gentile Christians. And I believe that this last portion of chapter 4 in particular gives us a glimpse of what it means to be people of peace in the midst of any storm. How is it that we can do that? Look at verse 2. Verses 2 and 3, Paul appeals to these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, and he appeals to them and says, would you agree in the Lord? And then goes on to ask an individual to join with them and help them. This true companion that Paul references to help these women who seem to be, at least from this text, key leaders in this church. Encourage them to get along. And Paul reminds them that these are ones who have labored with me along with Clement and others and that their names are written in the book of life. Commentator uh, Gordon Fee says that it's clear that Paul is writing to these leaders, but he doesn't take a side. He just says simply, agree in the Lord. Find common agreement in your faith. And then he appeals for others to step in and help them. We're not exactly clear who this person that he's inviting to step in and be a mediator, as as it were. But his appeal is to what they share in common, and that is a shared work, a shared mission in the gospel and then a shared identity as those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so my question for us, people of the cathedral, people tuning into this video, is have you had any fights with church folks lately? Paul doesn't name explicitly the argument that these two women are having, but it seems that he knew, knew what it was, or at least kind of the contours of what their disagreement was. And I would say in a similar way, I don't know the specifics of your arguments, but I can probably guess. Just by looking at general social media trends between Christians and friends and people that I know in this church, or looking at emails I've received or have been shown over the past six months or so, there is much to disagree about. Things like masks or not wearing masks, when to reopen, when to take extra precaution, things like race relations, 
our understanding of what a protest is and what a riot is. Of course, right now in the heart of an election season, we have major disagreements about policy and about politics and about candidates and about debates. It has certainly been a contentious year, and my sense is that it has at this point overtaken many of us. Many of us have forgotten our shared mission and our shared identity and have instead allowed these issues to take center stage. And these, at times, public fights on uh, mediums like social media have undermined that very mission that we share together as Christians. And it have brought conflict with our shared identity as the people of God. And so to us, I believe Paul would say, in the very same way that he said to these two women in Philippi, please, I entreat you, I appeal to you, I urge you, I encourage you to agree in the Lord by remembering your mission and your identity. Stop fighting in the comment sections. Stop sending angry emails. If you believe that disagreements are worth talking about, worth disagreeing about, call your brother or your sister in Christ. Set up a coffee. Take a walk. Look at their face. Listen. Have empathy. And then above all, remember your shared mission and your shared identity as the beloved of the Lord. Of course, this passage also shows that it's not just enough to simply be people of, of peace relationally for ourselves, but that we should also be encouraged to be peacemakers. Some of us may need to step in the gap and be mediators as this uh, true, com- true companion is called to be here by Paul. Jesus said that we are blessed if we are peacemakers. Paul commends that vocation as well. And I recognize that some of you may have uh, baggage from trying to be mediators, whether that's in um, unhealthy family systems or uh, parental disagreements that you found yourself involved in. I recognize that there can be difficulty of that, and you may have wounds from trying to be a mediator. So my encouragement is do it in a healthy way. But step in. Be an agent of peacemaking. Remind people that you're trying to get agree of their mission and their identity as the people of God. Be those who embody this prayer, this famous prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, who says this, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. May that be true of us, cathedral family. May we be instruments of peace, at peace with one another, but also agents of peace and reconciliation among this world. So the first thing is that for us to be a people of peace in the midst of the storm that is this year, we should strive for peace in all of our relationships. Next, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And then he reminds them that your reasonableness should be known to all people because the Lord is at hand. And these two verses here kind of connect the first thought about relational peace with the next thought about prayer and anxiety. But he reminds them that their 
witness, their relational agreement or disagreement also has uh, a meaning for those who are outside the church. And he appeals to them and says, let your reasonableness be known to all, to those who are outside. Um, this word has a lot of various trans- translations, but one of them is gentleness or kindness is how it's often translated. Let us be a people who are known by outsiders, by our kindness and gentleness to one another. That's what it means to be people of peace. And then he reminds them that this, the Lord is at hand. And commentators um, recognize that there, there can be a dual meaning of that, that, that the Lord being at hand could mean that he is present and with his people now, but it also could be referencing the second coming of Christ. And I think it's fair to say that both of those could be in view here. That Paul may be saying that, hey, know that God is with you. He is present in any conflict, in any storm right now. But also, the King of Peace is coming. So hold out hope. And that sets us up so well for verses 6 and 7. And I'm going to read it in its entirety because it's so good. In verse 6 he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Be anxious for nothing. That is quite an appeal, right? And I uh, spent some time looking at that Greek word uh, for anxious, and it just means anxious. There's no mystery there. There's not a disconnect between how we experience anxiety in our day and how Paul is writing to this church at Philippi who are surrounded by these storms. He's saying, don't be anxious. That, of course, is the default for many of us. There are so many things to be fearful about, nervous about, concerned about, and they just go in our head over and over and over again. Novelist and essayist uh, Marilyn Robinson has uh, notably said that contemporary America is full of fear and then says immediately on the heels of that that fear is not a Christian habit of mind. Fear is not a Christian habit of mind. And I think she's right. She taps into this biblical theme where again and again we hear the words, fear not. And I think she gets at what Paul is saying here. Not that Christians will not experience anxiety or experience fear or experience worry, but that we're not to make it a habit. We're not to practice it. We're not to allow it to just run amok in our minds. In another life, which has not been that long ago, um, I was once a guitar player and spent a lot of time playing the electric guitar in particular. And for those of you who don't know, there's, a, there's a, an effects pedal that you can run uh, your guitar through called a delay pedal. And all it does is basically repeats the sound. So you can play one note and it repeats again and again and again. And there's a knob on many delay pedals that you can turn up or down. Uh, mine, it's, it's, it's a knob. Some it's Um, various kinds of toggles, but it basically ups the level of repeats. And what happens if you play a couple of notes and then turn up that repeats, what happens is every single note begins to repeat, and then all those notes begin to repeat, and all those notes begin to repeat, and it eventually just spirals out of control. It's a terribly chaotic sound. If you don't believe me, come see me here at the church and I can show you, or Hunter can show you. But I think that's something like what happens when we get caught up in these these, uh, places of anxiety. Just thought upon thought upon thought, worry upon worry upon worry, just just get out of control. And it brings this sense of chaos in the midst of our minds. 
And what Paul is saying here is that not, not simply stop doing that because there's something innate in us that does that, right? We worry again and again and again. What he's saying is disrupt that cycle. Turn down that knob. Replace that anxiety with prayer. We can't simply stop anxiety. We have to replace it with something else. And so he goes on to say that be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This was a very common understanding of the elements of prayer uh, in Paul's Jewish mind. Supplication, thanksgiving, and request, it was all there. And the result of that, the result of, of, of placing prayer in the center of our mind, making that the habit, as opposed to whatever it is that might worry us or we might be fearful of, it's that thing that leads us to this place of peace. The promise that the peace of God, you hear this every time we have a Eucharistic service, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard you. One commentator, Thielman, says that this word for guard is, means not just a, a single guard, but actually like a garrison. So you can envision Paul riding from prison, looking around at the guards around him and saying, this is what the peace of God does. It's beyond comprehension. And it will guard not just your mind, but your heart also. To be a people who are at peace in the midst of any storm is to be those who pursue prayer over anxiety, who replace prayer with anxiety. Now I will say, as someone who um, has experienced anxiety myself and has um, experienced that in my family, I recognize that there are parts of anxiety that are um, just part of our physical body. They're part of our psychological makeup. And so I'm not saying that we can just kind of believe those things away, but I am saying that uh, this is not foreign to the Apostle Paul. It's not foreign to the human experience. And so certainly if you need medication for your anxiety, please take it. But in addition to that, choose prayer. Set aside anxiety and choose this kind of prayer and allow God's peace to do that work within your heart. Verse 8, finally, Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, if anything is commendable, excellent, or worthy, he says, think on these things. Consider them. Ponder them. We might even say, meditate upon them. Most scholars believe that Paul here is not drawing from his Jewish roots here, but he's actually importing uh, some, some Greek lists, some Greek virtues from other sources. It may be one kind of primary source. Or it could be just collect, collected. But he's saying to the, the people of Philippi, you as a contrast colony, in the midst of a storm, in the midst of a world that is contrary to you, surrounded by a barrage of many things, don't reject those things wholesale. He's not calling for them to be like um, a, a sect that completely leaves the world behind and goes off by itself like the Essenes did at the time of Christ. No, he's saying you can remain here in this world and you can embrace all the things that are good and true and beautiful. And yet be discerning. Don't take all of it. Just take the things that are good and commendable and worthy of praise. Christians have long uh, captured this notion by the phrase common grace, the doctrine of common grace. And that doctrine says that this is God's world. That it is filled with things that are good and true and beautiful, that all point us back to Him as Creator. 
And of course, they are marred by sin. They're not all good. They are marked by the fall. So be discerning. As you think on the things that are surrounding you, be discerning. Embrace the good. Spit out the bones. We, of course, are flooded with more information, more entertainment, more words and pictures than ever before in any generation in human history before us. And so Paul's appeal is be discerning in not only what we absorb, but how much we absorb it. Ask the question, what are these things? What are these films or uh, uh, magazine articles or websites or uh, whatever, news sources, doing to my heart? And what are they doing to my mind? Are they leading me to fear and anxiety? Are they leading my mind to spiral out of control like that delay pedal? Are they leading me to places of peace and goodness and truth? Be discerning. So being people of peace in the midst of the storm requires that level of discernment. In verse 9, Paul concludes um, this section, our section for this morning, by saying, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul summarizes and says that being people of peace takes practice. Practice these things. Each imperative verb in this section, in fact, is in the present tense, which implies ongoing action. These aren't things that we can check the box and do once and be done with. They're things that we have to practice again and again and again. We have to practice and fight for relationships that are at peace and being peacemakers among our other relationships. We're to be people who practice prayer, setting aside anxiety, embracing prayer. We're to be those who practice discernment in all things that vie for our time and our attention and our affections. And I can envision that in light of all these things, uh, three possible responses. I can envision that some of you may say that over the past six months, over this storm that is 2020, you were doing something like this. You had built in practices, you're pursuing relational peace, you're setting aside anxiety, embracing prayer, and that you are uh, discerning already. And so you are in some ways living this and, and recognize that it works. Hey, you are experiencing that I in the midst of the storm. And God bless you for it. More of you, I would imagine, are, are doing something like this or trying to and recognize that it, it's not working. Either you find yourself still caught up in the midst of anxiety or you find yourself still in the midst of relational conflict with those inside the church or without, without outside of the church. And you might find yourself being tired or discouraged. And there may be others of you that don't even feel like you're in the middle of the storm. You feel like you might just be in the spinning around, disoriented, and don't even find within yourselves the ability to, to try to do any of these things that I've talked about. You just may be thrown in the towel and say, I'm done. This year's too crazy. Let's hope for better in 2021. You just want to hibernate. But the good news this morning is that being people of peace certainly does take practice. And these things are important and I commend them to you. But more than practice, peace we see in this text comes from a person. And the theme is again and again that the Lord is the one who is the bringer of peace. It is the peace of Christ that comes near to our hearts and our minds. 
It is the God of peace who comes to us in the midst of trying to take on these practices. Peace that is envisioned here by Paul only can come from the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, who brought within his life and ministry a kingdom of peace, who, as Paul says in another letter in Colossians 1, that he has made peace by the blood of his cross between God and humanity. And because of that, we do have the possibility of peace within ourselves, within our own hearts, to be discerning, to choose what is good and what is bad. We have the ability to choose peace whenever there's relational conflict with us and with others. We have the ability to choose peace so that the, those outside the church look inside and, and are amazed by our reasonableness, our kindness, our gentleness. Friends, you may feel, and I assume you do, that this year has been one massive storm, that it has been sudden, that it has been terrifying, that it has been terrible. You may feel like you are in chaos. And the words of Paul here are true, that God invites us to be people of peace, practicing it in these various ways, relationships and with prayer and with discernment. But more than that, he invites us to know him as the Prince of Peace, as the one who says to the very storm, peace be still. It is because we know this Prince of Peace that we have any hope to be people of peace. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus is the word made flesh, that he has come in his life and death and resurrection to bring peace with us and with you. And we pray that whatever we are yet to experience in this difficult year and whatever storms we will experience going forward in, in the next year or the decades to come, Lord, may we know that we can practice peace, be people of peace, because you yourself are the Prince of Peace. We love you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.